0: So Max, welcome to the Kaka. Uh, Lovely to see and hear you a few days after a policy announcement from Labor that it wanted to extend basic publicly funded uh, dental care from uh, 18-year-olds to 30-year-olds over a few years. Uh, Tell us about your work with Action Station in uh, campaigning for universal uh, publicly funded dental care.
1: Yeah, kia ora Bernard, great to be on. Um, so yeah, I work part-time for an organisation called Action Station. Some people might have heard of it. It does um, uh, initially focused on kind of online petitions, but has increasingly done a number of offline campaigns. And uh, yeah, one of the campaigns that I've been involved with the last couple of years is called Dental for All, which as you, as you say, has been a coalition pushing for universal uh, te or Waitangi consistent uh, dental care. Uh, and uh, a couple of years ago, um, you know, I I raised universal dental as a a kind of important issue. I'm by no means the first person to, to kind of push this. There have been many campaigners and writers and, uh, dentists, in fact, over the years who've pushed this. Um, but for a variety of reasons, I thought it was a good moment for Action Station to take this forward. And we pulled together a coalition of um, health professionals, including dentists, uh, trade unions, um, and anti-poverty campaigners, uh, about five to ten of us. Uh, and over the last couple of years, we've met sort of semi-regularly Some of the people involved with that have been, um, for example, a a very passionate dentist called Hugh Trengrove, someone called uh, Brooke. Hal Stanley from Auckland Action Against Poverty and uh, ASMS, the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists, among others. And then we've done a few kind of key interventions where we've tried to push the debate along on universal dental. So, for example, um, this was led by ASMS. um, A paper came out the end of last year called Tooth Be Told by ASMS, um, pushing for uh, universal dental, explaining why it's a good idea. Then earlier this year, just a couple of other examples of things we were involved with. Um, we, uh, along with ASMS, um, pushed for some polling Um, And so that was done by Talbot Mills. That showed that 74% of people in New Zealand support Universal Dental, 77% of Labour and Green voters, but also 73% of National and ACT voters. Um, And around the same time, um, Action Station launched an online petition for Universal Dental, building on earlier petitions, but that's a petition that really kicked off and um, is now more than 16,500 people um, who support that. So... Yeah, at different points in time, we've tried to grab these kind of media moments and um, we've worked, uh, you know, with the communities that are represented by different people on the call. I should add that one other key group there has been um, Tiao Marama Aotearoa uh, New Zealand Maori Dental Association. Uh, And we've um, essentially, you know, tried to keep this in the debate and um, this has happened for lots of reasons, but we hope that we've helped to build the pressure to make uh, both the Greens universal dental announcement and now the uh, Labour announcement possible.
0: Just to uh, remind people of the scale of the issues and why it um, is more than just a a thing that um, seems inconvenient and painful. Why? Why does dental care matter so much for the wider society, the health system, um, and, and people's welfare?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, poor dental health has a lot of downstream health consequences. It's bad in itself, and when people can't afford. Uh, to pay for dental care. Um, Hugh Trengrove on our um, team has talked about how he's seen people, you know, resort to pliers to take out their own teeth because they haven't been able to afford it. That's horrific in itself. It means that people often feel shame and stigma, um, bad in itself for, you know, just getting by day to day, but it also means that people do things like they don't go to job interviews because they're worried about smiling, um, or even presenting, um, but as I said, there's also downstream health consequences, so it's correlated actually with um, poor cardiac outcomes, and um, you know more and more people going into ICU with very serious health problems because of poor dental. So that's the health side. Um, I've already kind of alluded to with with the point about job interviews that there's a there's, there are economic consequences of poor dental care, and so um, ASMS using um, some treasury modelling uh, suggested that every dollar spent on Uh, Publicly funded dental care would return $1.60 and actually suggested that um, broader benefits to society, uh, in terms of broader benefits to society, every dollar spent would return something like $4.50. And that's because the idea is people are are more productive um, when they're able to go to those job interviews, when they don't have to take time off work, when they're able to get those jobs. Um, when they're able to participate meaningfully in society. So that's the, the economic side. Um, yeah, I would say that th- those are the, m- the main reasons this, this really matters. And we know that lots of people in New Zealand don't go to the dentist um, because of uh, the cost. So the polling that ASMS did showed that 72% of New Zealanders um, put off going to the dentist um, because of cost in the last year. So there's a big problem. Uh, it's particularly um, bad dental outcomes for Māori and Pacifica. And others, and there's more I can say, but um, it's it's really um, an area where change is overdue.
0: This has been um, talked about for quite some time, as far back as 2018. Um, a Labor Party conference actually voted in favour of a policy of fully universal dental care for everyone, rather than just for children. It was extended from um, uh, from young children to um, people of the age of 18 uh, in 2005, in a promise then from Labour. But uh, it's now 2023, and we still haven't um, seen it extended uh, much beyond 18. I'm trying to understand the um, mechanics of uh, um, government's decision-making and the financial drivers because as you mentioned the cost benefit analysis modeling that treasury has would indicate it's a no-brainer so to speak to invest as much as you can until you only get a dollar back for every dollar that you put in and a dollar 60 for a dollar is a pretty good return on investment and that's purely from from a government finance point of view as you say wider $4 something for every dollar that you put in I can't, I'm trying to understand where in government um, there's the missing analyst (laughs) who's been saying for a long time, um, the finances of this stack up, um, what are you waiting for, Prime Minister?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's always hard to know, right, um, what tips the balance towards governments deciding something that, you know, has a lot of evidence to support it. But one interesting thing um, is to, to go back, actually, to the start of our public health care system. Uh, you know, in 1938, when the, the first Labour government passed the Social Security Act, dental was left out. And um, there's a good history of dentistry in New Zealand by uh, Tom Brooking. And what that points out is that during the Great Depression and then also the Second World War, there was a big um, drive towards bringing dental into the, the public health care system, because the kind of unmet need was laid bare. And just drawing on that historical example, one suggestion I'd make is that um, the COVID period uh, may have really laid bare the kind of inequalities and the the, the pain and the suffering um, that has been caused um, by Uh, bracketing dental out of the public healthcare system, uh, you know, ignoring your mouth in the context of your whole body. And that was actually something that several dentists said um, at a New Zealand Dental Association summit um, that I attended really recently. And so that may have been one of the kinds of uh, sparks that meant that, you know, all of the evidence uh, combined with other things to push uh, you know the Greens and the government along um, may have been other things. May have been kind of individual politicians, um, you know, making the decision that this was the moment um, when you know they want they wanted to to push this this, this bold policy over. It, it may have been the different campaigning groups, um, the people who are seen as having authority, the, the dentists speaking out. Um, it's always hard to tell, but those are some some suggestions. Perhaps
0: and uh, being effective um, in campaigning is uh, a tough. Thing. There's an awful lot of um, progressive campaigners out there tearing their literal hair out at um, an inability to get through the the noise in the public sphere and uh, reach people. Um, uh, what do you think was the difference this time around, which meant that a campaign for something that seems obvious and um, actually managed to um, strike a nerve, pun accidentally intended, (laughs) um, in that, you know, uh, as you say, 70-something percent of people thought it was a good idea.
1: Yeah, like I said, it's always hard to know exactly what makes the difference. But um, I guess... Just reflecting on the last couple of years, I think having the support of an organisation like Action Station helps. There's lots of com- community campaigners without the resources of an organisation, but that that helps. Um, the time, you know, being being paid a little bit um, to to do this work. I think having. Um, the evidence presented in a really accessible way in the way that um, ASMS did this in in their policy paper. So sometimes you have really good academic evidence out there, but it's not actually kind of framed up in a way that's accessible to the decision makers um i think having lots of media moments where you can be responsive and you can have a kind of rapid response and put out press releases and then also i think building relationships with some of the key decision makers and and, you know we've we've tried to do that a little bit in the campaign building relationships with you know not just academics and and dentists but also um some of the politicians and the officials and the people around them um, to try to make sure that this is an option that um is on Yeah, I don't know, honestly, um, what um, made the difference here, but I think all of those things um, hopefully contributed.
0: Yeah, on dental, I think one of the reasons that it has struck a chord is the very visceral sense that this is now our indicator of class, Hmm. because... You can't necessarily tell by walking past someone in the street whether or not they own a portfolio of rental properties. Um, There are various um, social indicators, I suppose you could say, but when someone opens their mouth and it's clear that they can't afford um, dental care or uh, have been in a position where over their lifetimes it has been an issue, it's one of the most obvious indicators of class or at least of Mm – Deprivation and separation between groups of people. Um, how do you how do you think that has played into the debate?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I think we have seen more discussions of class, um, at least in the in the UK and the US, and here in the last few years. I think um, following greater concern about inequality, and I think class is. is to do lots of things, um, and we could we could have a whole podcast about this, and not just your occupation, your your family history, and income. Um, but I think you're right that poor dental is a really stark marker of someone's position in society, and a really stark marker of the way uh, some people have been left behind by that society. And we've talked a lot in this, or we've heard people talk a lot in this election about the the squeezed middle, but we haven't heard so much about that really crushed group who've been entirely left behind and um, I think that this these bold policies, and I do want to give some credit to, to Labor and the Greens for, for coming out with these policies. I've been very critical of, of this government and, on, in other respects, but these bold policies um, help to, to spotlight um, some of that pain and suffering that people have been through. But the other point to make is that it's surprising how many people across the board, um, even with lots of protective factors and privileges, uh, um, are also unable to afford our dental care because we decided to, to kind of privatise that part of our health system.
0: And, and just finally, um, looking at what else the government could do to improve um, primary health care and dental, um, the Truth Be Told uh, report also talks about the role of um, sugary beverages and sugar. Um, what do you think could be done there?
1: Yeah, so there's, it's not an area I'm expert in, but I do know that a... Um, a levy on um, certain kinds of um, unhealthy uh, foods and beverages has been um, pushed in different countries overseas, including in the UK under the Conservatives. Um, I know that uh, advertising of uh, certain kinds of of, um, unhealthy foods and and beverages um, is an area where even you know, the New Zealand Dental Association has highlighted as, as an area of important action. Um, so yeah, th- these things need to happen alongside bringing dental into the public healthcare system. But I do think making uh, dental free, also in a universal way across the board, without the kind of bureaucracy um, or stigma, I think that is a really important step. And um, you know, this is a, a hole in our health system that has existed for more than 80 years. And I I do think it's important that um, some of the parties have had the courage to try to plug that hole, um, albeit perhaps imperfectly, um, or in ways that will require more work over time.
0: And one of the interesting aspects here is that of universalism. And um, one of the constant challenges in uh, providing publicly funded services is the age-old cry, you know, well, they could afford it themselves. Why should the rest of us pay for it? And then you get into the interesting business of trying to means test things or try and find some sort of proxy for need in uh, in measures. And uh, it all gets very messy and difficult and you spend a lot of money apart from anything else in trying to means test people. But over time, it's interesting that uh, quite a few of the publicly funded uh, services that have been, if you like, reintroduced to our social safety net uh, since the early 1990s, have used the um, uh, tactic or the strategy of making it universal, if only to ensure that middle New Zealand, once they've got it, don't want to give it up. <laughs> don't want to give it up. Could you talk about um, some of the, you know, political economy strategies around that?
1: Yeah, totally. So actually one idea that's picked up quite a bit in the last few years is universal basic services. So some of your listeners will have heard of a universal basic income, the idea of paying an income to people regardless of whether they work. But actually – Almost in response to that, yeah, a number of other economists in the UK and elsewhere um, have said we need to push this idea of universal collective services. This is what our education and healthcare systems are at least meant to be founded on, um, and yeah, this is an important principle to extend. I think actually in the last 30, 40 years, yeah, we've had the dominance of means testing. So you know, you, you only are entitled to certain benefits if you fall into often quite narrowly defined categories and you easily fall out of these categories and there's a lot of injustices in how these lines are drawn. Um, I think that um, we've only seen universalism sort of applied quite selectively and in in campaigns like campaigns for free public transport. Um, I think it's it's really important for a few reasons. It it raises the floor for everyone. Uh, It also, as I've already said, means you don't have the administration costs of deciding who fits into categories and checking and enforcing those categories it removes the stigma of someone uh, you know for example in in, in uh, free school meals um having to say oh, i need a free school meal i fit into a category rather than kind of being um, available to everyone um, and as you say crucially it gives the middle class a political benefit which helps to sustain support for that um, service over time, and one interesting dimension of that, I think, is that it makes it more likely that the media um, scrutinizes that service. Um, if you think about how the media reports on, say, healthcare or education, because uh, you know it's the whole population that's interested in that, compared to something like you know legal aid or welfare, which gets some, I think, attention but is seen as as something that benefits only a, a smaller group of people. So I think building universalism in builds that political buy-in, um, but also, which makes it harder for that service to be unwound. And yeah, you're going to get people who say, oh, you know, uh, not everyone needs um, dental. Are you, are you saying kind of millionaires in their 20s will, will need uh, dental or millionaires across the board? But that, that is the way our public education system works and our public hospital care works. We say everyone benefits and as a result, we, we all um, have an interest in maintaining that service.
0: Are there any other campaigns where universalism could be extended and um, could be the next one?
1: I think free school lunches is an interesting one, actually, because, yeah, this government has brought in um, free school lunches, but only in a small category of schools. And just recently in London, Sadiq Khan, the mayor, um, decided to make uh, free school meals universal, in particular because of this um stigma reason he actually said that he himself grew up in a school where um uh, it was means tested and this was extremely you know shameful and um and really like targeted uh, certain students and marked them out and so that's an area where I think we could be talking about universalism there's also public transport there was a bit, a bit of discussion about this in particular in Auckland in the last year um but there, there are other areas too I mean yeah there were debates about kind of universal broadband in the UK in recent years um and I've seen this debate happen around energy. Uh, and and in other areas too. So it's a it's a principle um, that is meant to be kind of a founding principle of of social democracy. Um, and I think we should be talking about um, what other essentials of life are also universal basic services. Because one other important element, this is the final thing I'll say on this, is um, when you make a service universal, often that involves taking it out of the market and saying, you know, this service is too important to be left to the market. Uh, and, and potentially another benefit of Bringing something in as a universal service as you shrink the role of of market values in our lives, and I think a lot of people would say, perhaps, you know, we see market values being too central in the way our society runs. Um, perhaps we need a little bit less individualism, a little bit less selfishness, and perhaps shrinking the role of those market values um, can build a kind of richer, more more caring society.
0: Max Harris, um, a campaigner for Action Station. Max, thank you very much for being on the Kaka.
1: Thanks, Bernard. Thanks so much.
0: Right, so I'm just stopping that now. And so what's happening is that the...